friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 13 for our time together in God's Word this morning. Uh, if you don't own a copy of the Bible, you should find one within arm's reach uh, on the pew in front of you or the seat in front of you or on the side of the pew down beside you. Uh, if you want to use that this morning, you'll find what we're going to look at on page 246. But then really, the reason I'm flagging is I'd love for you to just take it with you. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we would love for you to have that one. And if you're here exploring Christianity for the first time this morning, um, I, I think one of the first things to know about us as Christians is that, is that we believe the God who made us and who made everything that is, is a God who has chosen to speak so that we can understand who he is and what he's like and what he's done and how he's made us and, and what he's at, at work doing even now in this world that he made. And we believe that that God has spoken to tell us all those things in the Bible in these words that, that we can understand so that we can relate to him through, who, through, through what he said to us. One of the reasons we, we trust this book is that it's so profoundly realistic about the world that it describes. In the pages of the Bible, in the story that it tells, you'll see a world that is beautiful but broken, just like ours. And in the pages of the stories of the Bible, you'll you'll see profound honesty too about the characters who make up this story. The Bible, it is full of good and evil. Doesn't back down from talking about evil as evil or from celebrating good as good. But, but in the stories of the Bible, you don't have good guys and bad guys. You just have guys and girls who are all Reflecting God's goodness and beauty because they're made in his image, but also all compromised by the sin that's in their hearts and that shows up in their lives. There is no better example of this pattern in the Bible than the story we looked at together two weeks ago from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. That was a story about Israel's greatest hero, King David, like their George Washington this guy who is legend, the high point in Israel's whole history, was also the most notorious villain in the most notorious story of sin and its power and its effects that, that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. It was a story of David who used his power to take a woman that he wanted that was someone else's wife and who then murdered that woman's husband to cover up what he'd done. I want you to think about the time that we'll spend together this morning as a sort of sequel to the, the time that we spent in that story two weeks ago. Because even though God forgave David for what David did in sin against God, God warned David in that story that sin has consequences that David couldn't roll back. That those consequences wouldn't just be in David's own life, but would spill out into David's family and from David's family into David's people, his nation. This is a, a story of the aftermath of what David did in his sin against God and in his repentance for that sin. One way we framed that story two weeks ago was to, was to make sure it's as clear as possible that for Christians... We believe two things about sin. Apart from these two things, you don't get to Jesus. Sin is serious. It's a big deal, not a small deal. 
And sin is not somebody else's problem. Sin is not out there in those people who are like that. Sin is right here, in here. And because sin is serious, because sin is not somebody else's problem but mine, I need to be warned about the effects of sin and I need to know where to look for hope. That's what the story we'll look at together this morning is going to show us. The terrible effects of sin and the only place to look for hope. I want you to think about this, the, the section we're going to cover this morning like a kind of pyramid. Where at, at the base level will be most of our time this morning and most of the details in most of the stories that make up this long section. And then a second layer that will pass over to see something going on in the life of David. In the midst of the chaos, his sin is unleashed in his life and in among his people. God is at work in David's heart, bearing fruit from repentance. And then at the very tip of that pyramid, pointing to someone who would come from David's line, the only hope for ultimate redemption from the things that David had done to ruin the life of his people. I want to walk you through this huge section in three steps. I want to show you first, at that base level, the awful effects of David's rebellion. That's most of our time this morning. It's hard reading, but we have to look at it. Then step two, that second layer of this pyramid, I want to show you the beautiful fruit of David's repentance. And then finally, at the very end, the only hope for Israel's renewal. Now, before we get into it, one more thing I got to tell you about our time together this morning. We're covering nine chapters because they all go together as part of one big unit. I couldn't read them all to you in the amount of time that I have to explain them all to you this morning. So just truth and advertising, we're going to skip as much as we cover as we pass our way through this story. But, but it is possible to see the beauty and the power of this story by tracking with its main themes. And that's what I mainly want to do. I want to be your tour guide into this big section of text together this morning. Beginning in chapter 13, which follows on David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. That has just happened in chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 13 picks up right after the fact. David has been confronted with what he's done. That was chapter 12. He confessed to all of it. That was chapter 12. He had been forgiven by God in chapter 12. But the consequences are terrible and ongoing. And all around him, the people he was supposed to guide and to protect are suffering because of what he's done. That started with the death of his child. And it carries on into the three episodes that make up the awful effects of David's rebellion, beginning with the, begin, with the first section of chapter 13. I want to read this to you, beginning with the first seven verses, and I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. After a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, O oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, 
I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. This is God's word. You can be seated. The first of the three scenes to show you to illustrate the awful effects of David's rebellion comes here in chapter 13. David's daughter Tamar is violated by David's son Amnon. In what we've already read, you can see Amnon is sick with desire for his half-sister Tamar. God's law, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 9, made Tamar off limits for Amnon. But he wants what he wants. And this crafty man, Jonadab, comes up with a plan to get it for him. David, who's totally clueless, becomes the enabler of this evil thing and sends his own daughter to the wolf that is his own son. Pick back up with me in verse 8 for what happens next. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, send out everyone from before me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she'd made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where would I carry my shame? And as for you, you'd be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now, she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head 
and went away crying, crying aloud as she went. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? Tamar, especially as a character in this story, so kind, so unsuspecting and innocent, so truthful in everything she says before she's violated and after. She's right about why it's not okay. She's right about what will happen to her if he sends her away after the fact. She's right about all of it. But Amnon does not listen. Because to him, Tamar in his eyes is just an object. And he is stronger than she. That's the key phrase in the whole story. Verse 14. He being stronger than she. He's strong enough to take what he wants when he wants it. He's strong enough to banish her when he's done. And from beginning to end, she's nothing more to him than an object to be desired, to be consumed, to be discarded. But I ask you, where do you think Amnon learned to treat women like that? Do you remember chapter 11, verse 4? When David has seen Bathsheba from the rooftop, David sent messengers. David took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Then he sent her home. And David's sin with Bathsheba was not an out of nowhere slip in a moment of weakness and temptation. It was the culmination of a pattern of relationship toward women that the story had been laying out bit by bit for us up to that point. David took one wife after another. David created a harem of concubines for himself, just like was so normal amongst the ancient kings who didn't have God's law to tell them not to do it. There is no excuse for that glaring and destructive pattern in David's life. It was disobedience, plain and simple. It was dehumanizing. For these women that were made in God's image. And underneath all that, it was a powerful precedent for his son who was watching. And David has realized this now at the expense of his own daughter. The effects of David's rebellion are simply awful. And things devolve still further from here. Scene number two. David's son, Amnon, is murdered by David's son, Absalom. Come back with me to chapter 13, verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom, he spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. David is furious, and he ought to be. It's right to be furious. His anger makes sense. But the most telling thing about David's response is what's not there. He's furious, but he says nothing. He's furious, but he does nothing. He's furious, and he lets it go. He completely lets it go. David has no moral footing to push back on what he's modeled for his son in the first place. He is compromised and impotent in his anger. Absalom doesn't say anything either, but for a very different reason. He's biding his time. 
He's not going to forget what's happened to his sister. And he's not going to let this go. Absalom steps into the void David left open. And he uses the tools David modeled for him. Two years pass, verse 23 says. Then Absalom finds his moment to strike. He organizes a a kind of expedition for all the king's son to go get their royal sheep shorn. Once again, David is clueless and becomes his enabler. He's the one who makes the plot work. David lets them all go, including Amnon. And once there, go with me back to verse 28. Absalom, once all the king's sons are there and Amnon is there and they're all just getting their sheep shorn, Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Where do you think Absalom learned to use murder to solve his problems? One more scene I want to show you. This is the scene that consumes the majority of the chapters that are in our section this morning. And it's the low point in this spiraling story of sin and its effects. It's, it's, it's where the poison that, that, that started with David and his sin spills out from David's family all throughout David's kingdom, leaving thousands slaughtered in civil war. Scene number three, David's throne is stolen by David's heir. David's throne is stolen by David's heir. And for this part, we've got to fast forward a little bit, and I've got to do a lot of summarizing as we go. David initially leaves Absalom as an exile from Jerusalem after Absalom has murdered Amnon. But over time, David's heart begins to soften for his son. He misses him, and he welcomes him back to Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 14, it looks like father and son are reconciled. David embraces and kisses his son who bows before him in what looks like submission, but it's not. Absalom is just playing a longer game. He wants access to his father's court and all the privileges that come with it, but he does not respect his father's rule and has no intention of serving David for all his days. He wants to replace his father on this throne. Jump with me to chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. After this, in other words, after Absalom had come back, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. You see what he's doing, don't you? I mean, for one thing, this guy shows up in style. Wherever he goes, 50 people are running in front of him in his chariot. 
to make sure everybody knows when Absalom rolls into town. But just being impressive, just that little flash, that was nothing compared to what he was doing wherever he went. Basically, he was just telling anyone from anywhere exactly what they wanted to hear. Making promises behind David's back and stirring the pot of discontent toward David himself. It's an old adage in football that everybody's favorite player on a struggling team is the backup quarterback. He doesn't actually have to do anything, but he's not why they're failing either. So it's all possibility with that guy. And Absalom is the backup quarterback that's stirring the pot for this backup king. If only I were king, all your wildest dreams would come true. He's got people eating out of his hand. He stole the hearts of the men of Israel, verse 6 says. And this carries on, verse 7 says, for four years. He waits, he watches, shrewd, until the Roman comes to make his move. He leaves Jerusalem with a big group for Hebron, where David was first crowned king. And from there, he sends out word through all the land, verse 10 of chapter 15, Absalom is king at Hebron. When David hears what's happened, he's crushed. And for now, he decides to flee. He didn't want to bring death and destruction into his city. Look at verse 14. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there'll be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the scene in verse 30 captures the emotion of the moment and it's deep despair. Chapter 15, verse 30. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. It's not tough to understand why David is weeping, is it? From the slopes of the Mount of Olives, he could have easily cast his gaze back over his shoulder and seen the beautiful house that he had built, surrounded by the city that he had built and loved so well. And when he looked back over his shoulder at that city, he had no idea if he would ever return or if this was it for him. Surely he wept too for the son who was doing this to him. It was his son who drove him off of his throne. Surely he wept for the son who had been murdered after raping his precious daughter. And surely he wept for that daughter who didn't do anything wrong, but had her life ripped apart by evil. Whatever, whatever was on David's mind, whatever reason he was weeping as he walked up the Mount of Olives on his way out of Jerusalem, surely underneath it all, David wept because he knew his sin started this catastrophe in motion. You remember what the Lord promised David through the prophet Nathan, chapter 12? Verses 9 to 11, the Lord said to him, you, David, struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you've despised me 
and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Sin has terrible consequences. And everything playing out in this story is the consequence of David's sin. What are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to see here? What what are we supposed to learn? The first thing I want to do is speak to those of you who, like Tamar, have been profoundly affected by the sin of other people against you. You don't need me to tell you sin has terrible consequences. If you see yourself in Tamar's story, I hope you can also see yourself in Tamar's innocence. She was simply collateral damage in strong men pursuing what they wanted because they had the power to grab it no matter what. She wasn't there for what David did to Bathsheba or Uriah. She did nothing to encourage Amnon and his destruction of her. And she felt shame, the shame that is so common for victims of other people's abuse. But she had nothing to be ashamed of, nothing. And if you've been abused as she was, if you have been treated like garbage, used and thrown away, as if God were not watching or interested. And I want you to know that he does see. He does care. He has promised that he will judge the world in righteousness and that no sin committed against people made in his image and loved by his heart will ever go unpunished. That day is coming. And in the meantime, we're here to care for you while we wait for him to do what he said he's going to do. I also want to speak to those of you who may even now be flirting with sin as if it isn't, as if it isn't a package deal with terrible consequences you can't always see or control. I think these stories are here to warn us The lie from the garden is powerful still today. If you do what God said not to do, it'll be better for you and no one else has to lose. No one has to get hurt. Friends, it's just, it's a lie. It isn't true. Sin has terrible consequences that reach deep and wide. Even after God has forgiven you, the consequences are still out there. Through sin, it's just like, it's like throwing open a a cage to let a cheetah out, hungry, starving. You're not going to catch it. It's faster than you. No one's going to stop it. It's too powerful. And it is faster and stronger than anything you might throw at it. And it is born to kill. It is born to destroy. You, you are not more in control of your actions and their consequences than David was of his actions and their consequences as king over Israel. And look at all that's happening because David decided to do what he wanted to as if no one else had to suffer. 
It's just not true. This story is meant to terrify us with the power of sin and its effects in the world. Hey, guys, I want to, just for a minute, just push this forward. I, I want to speak directly to those of you who are young men here in our church and not married yet who may be tempted to believe the lie that pornography hurts no one because you're not married. It's a lie, brothers. It's a lie because the pornography industry is part of a global marketplace that turns sex into profit. And that global marketplace in which you participate with every click is devouring children around the world who were captured and consumed through sex trafficking. It's a lie that no one gets hurt because if you are given a wife someday, your future wife will be hurt. It's a lie because you may bring untold problems into a marriage and, and, and at the very least, lots of practice in crossing sexual boundaries that God has given you. Don't practice breaking God's rules. If you already feel like you're in bondage to this sin, what I want to tell you is that there are friends all over this room right now, all over this room. There are friends here who can tell you it's possible to be free of this bondage. Your life doesn't have to be ruined or defined by it. There is freedom through God's grace greater than this sin and its power to, to, to hold you. And around you right now is a community of people who will support you as you walk in obedience to God. I can promise you that because I'm part of that and I'm watching that and it is beautiful to see. But that kind of freedom only comes in the light. And it only comes by taking this sin as seriously as God does. Parents, I want to say one more thing to you guys too. There's something for us to learn here in this story. It's a hard lesson to learn. It drives us to our knees in prayer, but we have to listen to it. We have to see what we need to see here. Our kids are going to learn as much or more from what they see in us as from what they hear from us, from what they watch as from what we say to them. What are they seeing in how we treat other people? What are they seeing in how we treat our spouses? What are they learning from how we talk about others when we're frustrated? What are they learning from what we show them is important enough to us to spend our time and money on? What they watch us valuing? How they see us behaving? All this is going to outpace what we say to them by far. And they are always watching and they are always learning because they're supposed to be. That's how God designed this relationship to work. It's meant for them to pick up on, on what we believe, what we value, how we live. It's beautiful in that way. But oh, friends, what a powerful incentive this has to be for us in our battle with sin, in our battle for sanctification knowing that our kids are learning from us <laughs> even when our sin is not directed at them 
Do you realize our kids can be consequences of our sin? Even when we're not sinning against them, they can be a kind of victim of it by what they pick up from what we've modeled. Our sin is going to shape them in ways that we won't always recognize, much less control. And I, I guess slightly here, I'm meaning to scare us a little bit, but mostly I'm meaning to drive us to our knees in prayer. Who is sufficient for these things? What am I doing with kids? Like, how can I walk this road and not ruin them? And the, the answer is that we, we can't, friends. We just can't unless God is with us unless God is for us, unless God's spirit is renovating us as a sign of what can be done for them. Unless, in other words, we're willing to repent in front of them, to show them all the time that we need Jesus every day and that we're turning to him as our only hope in life and in death, that there's nowhere else to go with the mess that we bring to the table than Jesus, whose blood is sufficient to cover all of it. That's what we need them to learn from us. Mom and dad, they are sinners who repent and find grace, grace that's sufficient, grace that's always available. Thanks be to God that repentance, repentance bears beautiful fruit. And we get the chance to model that for those God has placed under our care. This also brings me to the second major layer in our pyramid uh, the, the, the second layer on top of the base layer. And so almost all of these chapters are hard reading. I think about what's playing out in the wake of David's sin as kind of like a toilet bowl effect for his kingdom. The high point was when he got the promise from God that his kingdom was going to last forever. No sooner than he gets this promise is he starts showing why God's promise is the only thing that can keep his throne forever. The whole thing is just a spiral. And that's most of the section from this morning. But... In the middle of these terrible consequences, these awful effects of David's rebellion, even as they're playing out, there is another thread that I want to pull for you to make sure that you can see. Because we're not just seeing the after effects of David's sin in this story. We're also seeing the after effects of David's repentance. David acknowledged his sin. He did not hide from it. He acknowledged it to God and to anyone else who would listen. And in the way David responds to what plays out in this section, we see the beautiful fruit of David's repentance in David's life. I can quickly summarize what happens from where we left off to to the end of our section. Absalom takes Jerusalem. That happens quickly. David spends some time in the wilderness, just like he did earlier when Saul was after him. Absalom comes out to the wilderness to get him. David's army defeats Absalom. Then David comes back to Jerusalem, but things never get back to normal. All of that sums up chapter 15 through chapter 21. But the gist of the action, like the, the battle between Absalom and David's men, it only, it only takes about three verses to cover. The, 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 the writer, the narrator, he doesn't really want you paying attention to the military history here. He gives significant paragraphs of attention instead to how David and other characters respond to what's going on. When the camera is on David, what we see is simply remarkable. We see a broken man who's learned to trust the Lord. A broken man who's learned to see the sin of others through his own sin against God. And through all of that, we can see that God's not finished with David, even as David continues to live through the consequences of his sin. God is not finished with him. 
and repentance bears beautiful fruit. I just want to give you four examples of this. This is a thread you can pull through the whole section. I'm going to show you four examples. Example number one. David isn't defensive. David isn't defensive. Jump with me to chapter 16, verse 5. David is on his way out of Jerusalem. We've already seen him leave, hiking up the Mount of Olives, crying as he went. Chapter 16 shows us encounters that he has with people on his way out into the wilderness. Look at chapter 16, verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. That's David's right hand and David's left hand, if you're wondering. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. This is just stunning audacity. I mean, it, it takes guts to, to shout down a, a king who's surrounded by mighty men, for one thing. But this character is also just completely wrong in everything that he says. He's blaming David for doing to Saul what Absalom is doing to him. He, he's seeing this as some kind of poetic justice. You destroyed Saul, now Absalom is destroying you, but... But if you've read the first parts of First and Second Samuel, you know David didn't do that at all. He was completely innocent. He had the chance to kill Saul multiple times. He didn't do it. He wouldn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed, he said. He waited patiently, righteously for God to give him the throne that God promised him. He didn't do anything wrong towards Saul. Much less murder him. Shimei's just wrong about David and wrong about Saul and wrong about what's happening in the situation. And he's wrong to speak to, the, to, to David, the Lord's anointed, in this way. He's wrong. And what would you expect a king with an army of mighty men to do in this situation? I think Abishai is pretty well dialed in. Verse 9, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. I love the way one pastor put it. David is innocent of Saul's blood, but he's not innocent. He may not have been guilty of Saul's murder, 
but he knew he was guilty of Urias. And this man, who knows his own sin, is not shocked or outraged at being sinned against. He trusts the Lord to do what's right, and he just lets it go. How do you tend to respond when you're criticized? How about when the criticism you receive is off base and you know it? Do you tend to look for a loophole or a kind of technicality? You know, a yes, but evasive maneuver? Or do do you accept it? The God who's forgiving you of far worse than this can defend you too when you need it. I wonder, have you ever thought about the fact that when somebody does something to you you don't deserve or accuses you of something you haven't done, the the response in your heart in that moment is a sign of the depth of your repentance toward God? True repentance toward God means accepting big picture. I deserve far worse than you know. You might be wrong about this particular thing, but you have no idea how right you are about all this over here if you could only see And what you're saying about me now doesn't change the big picture, even if the details might be wrong. Do you you look instead, instead of of looking for how to dodge what someone is saying, do you look for what you can learn from it and trust the Lord who is just and merciful? David does. David's repentance is bearing fruit. David is also compassionate. Second example for you. David is compassionate. I think the most charged with emotion moment in all of this sequence is David learning that Absalom, his son, and his enemy has died. Jump with me to chapter 18 now. Absalom has come out to the wilderness to put an end to David once and for all. David musters his men and sends them out into a battle he doesn't want to fight. And as they go out, verse 5, David says to all of them, deal gently with For my sake, with the young man Absalom, deal gently with him. So, verse 6, the army went out in the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim, and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak and his head caught fast in the oak and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, what, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I wouldn't reach out my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him 
and killed him. There's so many things about this story. I wish we had time to think about, pause, and reflect on. But all of these vivid details are here to set up David's response to the news that his enemy has fallen. So skip with me to the end of chapter 18, verse 31. Behold, the Cushite came. This was a messenger sent with the news. And he said, good news for my lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Grief has made the writer of the Psalms inarticulate. The only thing he can say is his son's name over and over and over. You see the heart of the king in this moment? David is empathizing with his enemy who wanted him dead. David stands in judgment over no man. He gets how this can happen. He had wanted Absalom restored, not killed. This isn't the ending he wanted. He's compassionate, even for his enemy. And one sign that we understand the depth of our sin is that we'll take no joy in seeing other people face the consequences of theirs, even when their sin hurts us. So friends, when when people who've wronged you face the consequences of their sin? Do you rejoice or do you grieve? David is compassionate. David is also correctable. This one is so striking to me. In chapter 19, David realizes through Joab that he, his grief over Absalom has gone too far. Everybody else sees his grief instead of celebrating this victory that they've won. It was right that they put down this rebellion. They should have been celebrating it, but they come back in. Verse 3 of chapter 19 says, Stealing into the city as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. And Joab knows that's not right. And in verse 5, he calls David out for it. Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, you'd be pleased. Now, therefore, arise, go out, speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you don't go out, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that's come upon you from your youth until now. And the king arose, took his seat in the gate. And all the people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. There's so much about this that is just stunning. Who talks to a king like this? Who talks to a CEO like this or just a boss like this when all they could do is fire you? Back then, insubordination like this could cost you your head. At best, you'd expect Joab to come at this with a little passive-aggressive sugar on top, you know, not just lay into him like this, but he does. And more stunning than how Joab treats David is the fact that David does exactly what Joab says. 
He sees. He was right. I was wrong. I should be out there celebrating with the people over this good thing that God did through them. Are you easily correctable? Do yourself a favor and ask a good friend to answer that question for you. (laughs) Have you ever thought of your comfort level with correction by others as a sign of your repentance toward God? See, repenting before God means recognizing I'm a person who needs correction. That's who I am. When you correct me in some specific area, you're not changing my overall view of me. You're just helping me recognize an example of a problem I already know I've got but can't always see for myself. In other words, you're only helping me toward the growth that I need. Are you correctable? The last fruit that we see from David's repentance is that David is forgiving. I think maybe the most striking example of his character in this whole story comes on his way back into Jerusalem. Because he meets on the way back into Jerusalem the same guy who cursed him on his way out. Look with me at verse 18. David is crossing the ford of the Jordan, bringing over the king's household to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Girah, you guys met him already, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Don't let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I've sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Aren't you glad I'm here? And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Stunning. Someone who's been forgiven much by God will be forgiving to others. Are you? Can you see why our narrator spends so much time showing us David's response to all the things that are happening around him? It's to show us what follows from repentance. As awful as the effects of this sin have been on David and his family and his people, God has not finished the work he's doing in David's life. That work goes on. The God who forgave him is still shaping him, which points us to our conclusion this morning. The tip top of our pyramid, the only hope for Israel's renewal. And I'll leave you here. This morning, we've been focusing mostly on the aftermath of David's sin and David's repentance. But the whole story, this whole nine-chapter sequence, it comes in the aftermath of God's promise. A promise made to David when David did nothing to earn it. A promise that David would have someone from his line reign on his throne forever. And that through that king, God would make all things new. This story is showing us why that promise matters so much. The only hope for Israel's renewal is the steadfast love of the Lord that won't let Israel fall. By the end of this sequence, at the end of chapter 21, the final scene in this whole section is David fighting once again against the Philistines. They're still here. David now is too weak to fight for himself, so it's his friends that come around to kill another giant named Goliath. 
And we're in it to ask as David's fading out. Knowing we're a long way from happily ever after. What's really changed? Aren't we just right back where we started? And not just because the Philistines keep coming and so do their, 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 their Goliaths. Do you remember why Israel needed a, a king in the first place? The book of Judges said there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It was total chaos. And the main signs of chaos in the book of Judges were that Israel was broken by civil war. And that women were being sexually abused by men too powerful for them to resist. This section is judges on repeat with David on a throne he's not going to hold for much longer. What's changed? Where will Israel find renewal if not through this man? And we're meant to remember that what's changed is that God has made a new promise. A promise of a better future through a king that would come on David's throne never to be unseated. That God's love would break this cycle. His steadfast love would break this cycle because his steadfast love would not spare his own son. It would take a nuclear option to break this cycle. Not David putting it all back together again. Not Solomon learning from his dad's mistakes and never repeating them. A nuclear option. God sending his son into the world through David's line to reign on David's throne forever. It would mean Jesus willingly taking on the consequences of sins that were not his own through his death on the cross. And when Jesus rose again, he rose with this promise as his backdrop. Sin has been paid for. The victory has been won. And one day he's coming back to make all things new. New and beyond the reach of sin and sorrow forever. That's our hope, our only hope for renewal. Will you pray with me now? Father, we need your help to hold on to the hope you've given us because in our world right now, we see a lot more of what David went through in this season of his life than we see signs of renewal or peace. We cling to your promise of one to come who will make good on everything that you have promised to do for your people. And we pray now that Christ would come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.